Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. In 1964, director Sergio Leone revolutionized the Western genre, along with composer Ennio Morricone, who redefined what a film score could be. This is The Soundtrack Show. Benvenuti al soundtrack show. Mi chiamo David W. Collins, and this episode is part of a series that looks at the soundtracks of three spaghetti westerns by director Sergio Leone. Per un pugno di dollari, or in English, A Fistful of Dollars, from 1964. Per qualche dollaro in più, for a few dollars more, in 1965. And finally, Il Buono, Il Brutto, Il Cattivo, or The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, from 1966. I will spare you the accented readings from now on. All starring a younger and relatively unknown Clint Eastwood with three revolutionary film scores by Italian composer Ennio Morricone. These are the first three films, known as the Man With No Name trilogy, of one of cinema's most important director-composer collaborations, Leone and Morricone, respectively. And when they were released, especially in America in 1967, they were huge hits. They helped redefine and reinvigorate a stale, almost dying genre in film. The Western. And they did it with a cool irony, a strong sense of style, a dash of humor, and a ton of machismo and violence on the screen. And the music was a massive departure from the melodies and sounds of westerns from the past. Compare this. 
with this. Or this. this. I mean, what are we listening to? What are these films? How did they come about? Why are they so revolutionary? I mean, after all, the music to the good, the bad, and the ugly has been so famous for so many decades that it's dangerously cliche now. But how was it so rebellious and cool in the mid-1960s? Let's go back and take a close look at our creatives, Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone, and discuss the evolution of the so-called spaghetti western, and talk about the state of the movie industry and the state of younger generations of the world back in the 60s. Hopefully, this will shed a little light on how Morricone and Leone created these incredible scores. Let's start with our composer. Ennio Morricone was born into a working-class family in the Trastevere neighborhood of Rome, Italy, in 1928. His father, Mario Morricone, was a professional trumpet player in clubs around Rome and taught his son Ennio all about treble clef as a child. Ennio immediately began composing music on paper showing a very early passion for writing his own music. But he also took after his father and played the trumpet. It's believed that, since Mario Morricone was a trumpet player and gigging live around Rome, that that was the Morricone family's only income, and as a result, young Ennio actually filled in for his father at gigs whenever his father was sick, even as a small boy of 10 or 12 years old. They needed the money. At the age of 14... Young Ennio Morricone enrolled at the National Academy of St. Cecilia, a conservatory in Italy where he seriously studied, not composition, but the trumpet. However, his interest in writing music slowly took over. Here's a clip from a BBC documentary about Morricone from 1995. Ennio Morricone had a difficult time when he studied at the conservatory. It was almost scandalous for a trumpet student to want to study composition. Sextet from 1953 by Morricone. So he was going through school, he was writing more and more and more music. Eventually, this led to paying gigs. And he started doing arrangements for the then-fledgling recording industry in order to support himself, providing lush instrumentation for popular songs in Italy, and even writing some of his own. Sì, 
Se Telefonando, composed by Morricone. I began to compose for television, radio, theater, and finally, films. Now, this is where our story starts to take a turn. It's true that Morricone loved traditional orchestral sounds. He said that as a child he was very inspired by opera, and mentioned German composer Karl Maria von Weber and his opera Die Freischutz as a very early inspiration, as well as Italian operas, of course. So he certainly had a strong melodic and dramatic sense and a love of the classics. But Morricone was also somewhat avant-garde. He began experimenting in his arrangements with everyday type of sounds, to ground them in a certain expressive reality that people could relate to. Here's a vintage interview of Morricone in the early 1960s, where he describes his love of using real-world sounds in his music. Morricone says, I've always put concrete sounds, everyday noises, into my works. Many people probably think I'm capricious, putting sounds like typewriters and tin cans into music. I do it to give an element of actuality. Maestro, may we hear the typewriter? Hmm. Well, we all know where that's going. Now, I want to pause Morricone's story for a moment at this point. Pause it right there in the early 60s to discuss what was happening, meanwhile, in the entertainment industry as a whole. We've discussed the so-called golden age of Hollywood quite a bit on the soundtrack show, which really existed between, I don't know, 1927-ish, the birth of sound in films, to about the late 1940s or perhaps 1950-51. In the 1950s, everything changed primarily due to television. The classic Hollywood studios couldn't depend on the masses around the world packing into movie theaters anymore to see their films. Not when they had small screens at home to compete with. The factory system that was Hollywood was beginning to be placed in the rearview mirror, especially as they were losing huge amounts of money in the box office and giant corporations started buying out all of the studios. One of the casualties of this was the traditional Hollywood Western. It had become a bit of a tired formula, as had much of the factory-like plots and settings of Hollywood's films. It's not that they didn't exist, but audiences were growing tired of it, and probably with good reason. Here's a quote from Rudy Belmer's book Inside Warner Brothers from 1935 to 1951 that really exemplifies just how factory-like and generic the movies of classic Hollywood could be. And of course, you know my feelings about movies of classic Hollywood. I love them. Perhaps by the 1960s, this following passage will help describe why westerns from classic Hollywood were most likely played out. Here we go. Quote, The studio system of the 20s, 30s, and 40s was essentially a factory-like method of turning out product to distributors and then to exhibitors for the public. Basically, it was not much different from the manufacturing of automobiles. But there was one difference. Despite attempts of standardization, no picture could be exactly the same as another one on the assembly line. But similar formula elements, plots, incidents, characters were used and then transposed from one genre to another. What worked in a Western could be used six months later in a gangster film. Twists, blends, and cross-pollinations were the rule. When the script of They Drive By Night seems to run out of steam, the solution is to move directly into the third act of Border Town, made five years earlier. 
when Captain Blood's a hit, do it again, more or less, as the adventures of Robin Hood, and then the Seahawk. Goes on to say, when the Western Dodge City works, follow it with Virginia City, San Antonio, and others. If Betty Davis dying from an incurable disease in Dark Victory is a big box office, repeat it in Till We Meet Again, a remake of One Way Passage, except that Davis refused to do the picture and Merle Oberon had to be hastily substituted. This goes on for a while. Remakes abounded at Warner's, and they did it at all the studios. The Desert Song was made four times, if you count one short subject version. High Sierra was filmed three times. The Dawn Patrol was produced twice with the same title, and all its spectacular air footage was lifted from the first version to fit neatly into the second. The prison drama 20,000 Years in Sing Sing, filmed in 33 with Spencer Tracy, became Castle on the Hudson in 1940 to accommodate a new star, John Garfield. Stories were revamped, inverted, musicalized, updated, bent, sequeled, made into series, converted to another time or place, but they kept coming off the assembly line." End quote. That is the system that was making westerns up to this point. And by the 1960s, it was played out. So the plot points and devices so loved by the previous generation were hard for youth coming up in the 60s to relate to seriously. Something had to give. And we start seeing social and political changes throughout the 60s. And though old westerns had been loved throughout the world, the old westerns hadn't changed with the world. So now, let's get back to our creatives in Europe in the early 1960s. A young assistant director named Sergio Leone had been working in the film industry since he was 18 years old, and was even an assistant director on some large Hollywood epics that shot in Italy, such as Ben-Hur and Quo Vadis. He had also dabbled in script writing when his big break came in 1959, while working for director Mario Bonard on the Italian epic The Last Days of Pompeii, Bonard fell ill, and young Leone took over and finished the film. Two years later, he was a bona fide film director, having directed his feature debut in 1961 called The Colossus of Rhodes. Now, also in 1961, the plot thickens. Leone walked into the Harlequin Theater in Rome and saw a movie that he identified as the basis of what would be his next project. That movie was Yojimbo, a Japanese film by legendary director Akira Kurosawa. Leone's immediate reaction was, you know what, this movie would make an amazing Western and he immediately began pre-production on what would eventually become A Fistful of Dollars three years later. Wait, what? A Western? Yes, a Western. You see, Westerns, while associated with American folklore, obviously, and certainly made famous by Hollywood, have been actively shot and produced very cheaply in Europe for decades before this point. Now, most of these films were extremely low quality, Often they were comedies. The phrase spaghetti western was coined by the Spanish media as a shorthand for westerns produced by the Italian film industry. These were mostly shot in parts of Spain, where the terrain looked an awful lot like parts of Arizona, California, or the Mexican border. But none of them had had the impact that Leone's films were about to have on the world. Leone knew his audience would still love the western genre as he did, but it needed a shot in the arm. It needed a facelift. It needed to change with the times. You've got to remember that um, this movie was initially pitched at the Italian audience. 
And the Italian cinema-going audience was very distinctive. No television in southern Italy at this time. And the average adult in the south of Italy in 1964-5 went to the cinema twice a week. The equivalent figure today in the United Kingdom would be three times a year. Twice a week they went to the cinema. So, you know, we're talking about a very particular kind of audience. Low boredom threshold, talking throughout the movie, uh, stopping talking when someone gets shot. And then at an arbitrary point, halfway through the movie, the projectionist would sort of stop and go and have a cup of an espresso and a, and a cigarette, and, and there'd be an intermission, possibly two. <laughs> I think this was an audience that was laughing at John Wayne by now, and they didn't laugh when Clint Eastwood opened his mouth. Leone had a vision for his Western, one that would be radically different, more rock and roll, almost like James Bond. Indeed, Dr. No came out while Leone was in the midst of brainstorming. The feel needed to be different, as did the visuals, the hero, and of course, the music. So, before composer Ennio Morricone comes back into the picture on this story, particularly this picture, A Fistful of Dollars, we should know that Morricone doesn't get involved with Sergio Leone or his Yojimbo-inspired Ronin Western until it's completely shot and in post-production. So more on Morricone a little bit later. Director Sergio Leone crafted a script based very much on Yojimbo, about a gunslinger who comes to a border town in the American Southwest and pits two rival gangs against each other in order to make some money. The hero is cold, macho, and morally ambiguous. Leone secures a budget of a meager $200,000 and begins to look for his star. Enter actor Clint Eastwood, who in 1964 wasn't a big movie star yet. The big Western credit to his name was on the small screen. Moving, 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 though they're disapproving, keep them doggies moving hard. Don't try to understand them, just smoke, throw, and brand. Soon we'll be living high and wide. My heart's calculating, my true love will be waiting, be waiting at the end of my Rawhide, a CBS TV show that Eastwood had been starring in since 1958, though he wasn't too happy with the sort of youngish nature of his character. Eventually, Leone was able to cast Eastwood in his Yojimbo Western for a fee of $15,000. Here's Clint Eastwood from an interview in 2003 remembering his earliest experiences on the set of A Fistful of Dollars. Sergio didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Italian when I first went over there. He knew goodbye, and I knew arrivederci, and that's about it. So we had a, a wonderful uh, woman from Poland who had been working for Constantine Films, and she spoke many, many languages, and uh, Italian fluently, and she sort of represented Constantine in Italy. So she uh, interpreted, and her, her English had been learned by Americans after World War II, so she knew American-style English with all the slangs and what have you. They, they were very shoestring. He just had German money in it, and Spanish money, and Italian money. And those three entities were constantly arguing with themselves about who would pay what. Sometimes they'd do a shot three or four times because they were so paranoid. In the early days, they'd do a couple takes because they figured the lab would screw up the first two or three, or somebody would get scratched, or somebody would drop it. It was very haphazard. It was a great experience to look back on. But the time, <laughs> it, was kind of, it was kind of funny. I mean, now it's very funny. With the film in the can, 
it's time to add music. So let's go back to our story about that young composer and arranger, Ennio Morricone. His avant-garde song arrangements, his strong sense of melody, his talent, and his speed saw his career as an arranger and a composer grow pretty quickly from records and radio to theater to television and finally to feature films. So when it was suggested to Sergio Leone that he consider this young Italian composer, Ennio Morricone, he was given two of Morricone's early film scores to look at and listen to, both of which were westerns, Gunfight in the Red Sands and Bullets Don't Lie, or sometimes translated Pistols or Guns Don't Lie. And you know what? Sergio Leone hated them. He hated the music. In fact, it wasn't until he met with Morricone and heard one of Morricone's song arrangements that he fell in love with the idea of Morricone scoring a fistful of dollars. Okay, you ready for this? The following's going to blow your mind. Here's what happened. Morricone gets together with Sergio Leone, actually shows him a picture of the two of them as school children. Leone didn't remember that they actually were schoolmates together when they were very, very little, but Morricone did and was able to brandish a picture showing both of them in the same shot in the same school uniform. That was one way of ingratiating himself, but the other was he started playing him other bits of his work, including some of his song arrangements. Now, in the early 1960s, an American folk singer named Peter Tevis from Santa Barbara, California, was living in Italy and collaborated with Morricone on one of these hot song arrangements. Together, they put out a new version of an old Woody Guthrie tune from the 1940s called Pastures of Plenty. The original recording sounds like this. It's a mighty hard road that my poor hand is told. My poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. Out of your dust bowl and westward we rolled, and your desert was hot and your mountains was cold. Okay, a song about picking crops in the dust bowl of California, a la John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, a simple song from my grandfather's time, as he lived this life and used to sing songs like this to me when I was a kid, the guitar strumming along in a major key with a pentatonic, pleasant melody. Folksy Americana, I get it. Well, when Morricone arranged this song for Peter Tevis, it sounded very, very different. And what you're about to hear will blow you out of your chair if you're a fan of Leone's westerns. Legend has it, when Morricone played this arrangement of Peter Tevis's Pastures of Plenty, Leone said, that's it! That's the sound of my movie! Or, you know certainly something to that effect. As the arrangement of this tune, in its new minor key, with Morricone's real-world sounds of a church bell, a whip, pan flutes, and even more, became almost verbatim the main body of music for A Fistful of Dollars. Let's take a listen. It's a mighty hard road that these poor hands have hoed my poor feet has traveled the hot, dusty road Out of your dust bowl and westward we rode Through deserts so hot and mountains so cold Well, I've wandered all over your green, growing land and wherever your crops are, I'll lend you my hand 
On the edge of your cities you'll see me and then I come with the dust and I'm gone with the wind with the wind with the wind California Arizona I've worked on your crops with the wind then northward up to Oregon I've gathered your hops with the I've dug beets from your ground and I've cut grapes from your vine to set on your table that light sparkling wine. Wow. First of all, like I said, very different from the original tune that we heard. But now, let's hear the opening credit sequence of A Fistful of Dollars in order to compare. That is exactly the same guitar. Okay, a new whistling melody over the guitar. And that pan flute figure, that's important to notice. Now, a whip. And some metal clanking. Railroad? And now a church bell. And now men chanting, We can fight, we can fight. We can fight. We can fight. And now what's this? A Fender Stratocaster in our Western? Holy, what the? now a choir with some strings. And the galloping continues in the percussion. A cover version of an old folk tune suddenly turned movie theme. Morricone's use of everyday items mixed with other odd instruments, plus his gift for drama and melody essentially created the sound of what the world would come to famously love the new musical sound of the Spaghetti Western. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. I want to break down a little bit of what we heard here. The whistling melody is different than the Peter Tevis song, obviously, but the chord progression of this is the same. I actually have my uh, guitar here. By the way, I take no money from Taylor Guitars, but I used to gig with this guitar and it's been in its case for a year. And when I opened it up, it was still pretty much in tune. So on guitar, we're in a simple D minor here with a hammer on on the fifth chord, just chugging away in this rhythm, like a horse galloping along. As the melody continues, you know, you're doing this for a while. Then eventually it goes, you know, which is an F major, the chord built around the defining minor third of D minor. Nothing unusual there. Then back to D minor for a while, but then eventually it does this sort of B flat major. 
built around the native flat six of D minor, nothing unusual. But the following chord absolutely defines the Morricone Western harmony, a G major. Why is this significant? Well, this chord, it's not a chord that is naturally occurring in D minor. It's a borrowed chord, creating this wonderful lift, this sort of major lift out of the minor darkness, sort of a moment of light. But then, of course, it's swallowed back into minor as it goes back into this B flat, this flat six chord. And then back to D minor, chugging away. Another thing that it does is it creates this wonderful chromatic harmonic line, which is really interesting, you know, and really gives it this, this sort of exotic flavor where you've got this, this in D minor here, and that A kind of chromatically rises to B flat. And then in the G chord, you get a B natural. And then of course, back to B flat. I told you it was like James Bond a little bit. <laughs> But anyway, it's really, really cool and really helps define this sound. By the way, for those of you that are Star Wars fans, this is largely imitated throughout the years, especially on da 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 be flat here da 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 da. Anyway, it's such a European sound, such a darker take on American folk music that we heard with that Woody Guthrie recording. The music, like the visuals of A Fistful of Dollars, is just plain grittier. And we have to talk about the sounds in that music. Who the heck puts all that stuff into a Western? A Fender Stratocaster? Rock and roll. This is not your parents' Western. And as an audience member, we know it from the very get-go. We know it because of the music in the opening credits. By the way, it's worth mentioning that this movie really marks the beginning of one of Sergio Leone's trademarks, the extreme close-up on faces. I'll let Sir Christopher Frailing explain it. Technoscope, this letterbox, apparently looks like Cinemascope, but is in fact a kind of poor man's Cinemascope. The, the cheapness of it was that you could print two frames for the price of one. It's called 2P, two perforation Technoscope. And while they were making Fistful of Dollars, they realized that it could do extreme close-ups and keep them in focus. A real, real close-up. I mean, Leone already had in the script PPP, extreme close-up of some of these characters, these famous physiognomies that he was so interested in. Massimo Dallamano, the director of photography on Fistful of Dollars and a few dollars more, put the camera right in for these close-ups and the trademark close-up emerged. It's interesting, in Leone's previous film, uh, Colossus of Rhodes and The Last Days of Pompeii that he'd worked on, there is none of that. It all starts with Fistful. It's a mixture, I think, of a, of a great director of photography and a director. What are the possibilities of this technology? And one of them is the big, big close-up. This is significant because I think it led to how Leone and Morricone use music. I want to go back and talk about that little pan flute figure. This. This little figure is used like a musical punctuation mark throughout A Fistful of Dollars. Whenever Clint Eastwood does something cool, we hear this figure. In fact, after the main credit sequence, as Eastwood rides into town and we get our first close-up of our hero, the man with no name, we hear this figure right on the close-up.
And after riding into the main part of town, and the man with no name is harassed by three, no, four, members of the Baxter gang. Get three coffins ready. Uh, huh? Our no-name hero confronts them, asking them to apologize. Adios, amigo. Listen, stranger. Didn't you get the idea? We don't like to see bad boys like you in town. Go get your mule. <laughs> you let him get away from you? <laughs> yeah, see, that's what I want to talk to you about. He's feeling real bad. Huh? My mule. You see, he got all riled up when you went and fired those shots at his feet. You making some kind of joke? Mm, no. You see, I understand you men were just playing around, but the mule, he just doesn't get it. Of course, if you were to all apologize... <laughs> they laugh. And when they do, here we get another extreme close-up on Eastwood, accompanied with... that pan flute figure. I don't think it's nice you laughing. Followed by tense strings. See, my mule don't like people laughing. It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if you apologize like I know you're going to, I might convince him that you really didn't mean it. Uh-oh, our hero is actually a lethal killer. And then he shoots him dead. At the end of the scene, we hear the figure again as he puts his poncho back into place and walks away from the sheriff. Yeah, well, if you're the sheriff, you better get these men on the ground. And tells the coffin maker to prep four coffins instead of three. My mistake, four coffins. The saying goes that in old westerns, the hero was always the best shot. And in Leone's new westerns, the best shot is the hero. Here, the man with no name instantaneously took out four gunmen. And the scene is bookended with Morricone's music and pan flute figure. The result of that is, well, as an audience, we develop an almost Pavlovian response to it. At this point, we're cheering for this antihero because he's just so cool. And that music seems to follow his cat-like pace and oftentimes even speak for him, as this character truly is a man of few words. Baxter's over there. Rojo's there. Me right in the middle. Then they started molding the character, and Eastwood started cutting lines a lot because he found that he was too talkative. Who are you? Who's Marisol? Too dangerous. He's one of the very few actors in history who actually fought to, to speak less lines. Most people are falling over themselves to get more lines, but he wanted less, and he was right. The enigma, the magic, the enchantment of the character is that you don't know much about him. He's a closed sort of character. The visor is down, so you don't want lines. When do I start? So, yeah, it, it suited everyone to strip this character down and not make it too vocal. Speaking of words, I want to talk about another very interesting aspect of this soundtrack, and that is the actual literal soundtrack itself. Within minutes of watching this movie, you'll probably notice that the lip sync is off. Like, way off. Not because the movie is out of sync, no, but because the entire movie, and I mean absolutely everything you hear, including every spoken line uttered in all three of these movies, is dubbed in a studio and created after the fact. 
This movie was shot in Spain in the desert and several national parks and featured an Italian crew filming actors from America, Italy, Germany, and Spain. And while they were filming, each actor actually just spoke their own native language to each other. In the scene, oftentimes they were just making it up on the spot in order to move the gist of the scene along, and nobody was really concerned at all about capturing keepable audio on the set. Every movie made in Italy in the 1950s was post-synchronized. It was the tradition. Don't laugh. I'm not joking. I want to warn you that those murderers will make a corpse out of you one day. On the set, you get all these international characters appearing, speaking their own language, a sort of babble of monoglot actors. So the West German actors speak German, the Spanish actors, the American actors, they usually speak their own language. You heard Ramon? Let's have a good time. And then the voice track will be put on afterwards, depending on the country that it was to be released in. So, you know, there were West German actors in Fistful of Dollars, so for the German version, it's dubbed into German. There were Spanish actors in Fistful, it would be dubbed into Spanish and into American. When you want to kill a man, you must shoot for his heart and the Winchester is the best weapon. That's very nice, but I'll stick with my 45. A lot happened at the dubbing stage. In fact, uh, very often the script was changed quite dramatically at the dubbing. You can do what you like, because the lips are going like this most of the time. So you can put uh, all sorts of words on. I'm glad we have the Americano with us. The best thing that could have happened to us, you know. Because if either government starts an inquiry, <laughs> we need every man we can get. You'll notice a lot of wheezing laughter in Italian westerns, that particularly from the Mexican heavies. This is usually because they'd run out of words. <laughs> So somebody's saying, hello, how are you? Oh, 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 oh. You know, just to fill out the, um, uh, the phrase, really, because that, that, that was, it was slightly crude. You couldn't stretch words in those days. Here's Clint Eastwood describing what it was like filming in an environment where quiet on the set wasn't even a consideration. It was so funny because you'd be doing a scene and in your eye line off of the, one side of the camera or another, you'd see a couple guys back there playing frisbee or making motions or telling jokes and you hear people talking and uh, it's uh, it's very, very distracting. And, and I, I just kind of forged over it. It, it, used, it gave me a reason to concentrate that much more intently, but they just weren't used to the, the quietness of a set where sound is a very important feature. A friend of mine in Rome said, oh, they're going to lose the track. They do do a guide track there. They don't pay too much attention to it because they're going to loop everything later anyway. So they said, be sure and keep track of any changes you make because they're going to lose the guide track. And they did, sure enough. A year or so later when I was looping Festival of Dollars, a few dollars more uh, to come out in uh, this country, I had to uh, go back to my own notes. I don't like to take money unless I feel I've earned it. I'd make up a lot of stuff anyway. And we just all kind of do the scenes and whatever the intent was. And, but you did have to keep track of it, because you're going to loop it later. So, as Eastwood pointed out, even the recordings that were made on the set were lost somewhere in post-production. They didn't even bother to keep them or to keep track of them. What that means, my friends, is that the movie, when edited together, was actually totally silent. And all of the actors came in to dub their parts into whatever respective language they spoke for whatever international mix they were properly suited for. So, for example... Clint Eastwood did the dub in his own English version, but was replaced by someone else in Italian, obviously. And this also means that every sound that we hear, every footstep, horse trot, and whinny, every gunshot, every wild animal, everything was meticulously crafted in the editing room 
by Leone and his editors. You could treat the soundtrack as a piece of design, like the visual design of the movie. So you can lay natural sounds on, you can lay music on, you can really play around with the soundtrack in a very creative way. And I think that was a, a big contribution of Leone's cinema, that he once said that the sound was 40% of the experience of the movie. Take a moment of violence, a gunshot that sounds like uh, a mortar, but it's only a colt, you know, bang. Silence, horse whinnying, <laughs> dust. And it all builds up into a kind of symphony of tension through natural sounds. And superimpose on that Ennio Morricone, and you've got a really distinctive piece of sound design. So post-synchronization, creative opportunities in the dubbing studio, and Leone would spend hours there, put in a cock crowing there, put in a bird there, put in a scrunching noise. And it becomes almost abstract, a symphony of natural sounds, choreographed like a piece of performance art. A Fistful of Dollars was panned by critics when it came out. But in spite of that, it was a huge success in Italy, just as Leone had predicted it would be. It grossed $4 million in Italy at the box office, the most any Italian film had made up to that point. But there was a small problem. Remember how Leone based this film on Kurosawa's Ronin movie, Yojimbo? Well, apparently, Kurosawa had this to say about A Fistful of Dollars. Quote, It was a fine movie but it was my movie, end quote. Fears of a Kurosawa lawsuit delayed Fistful's release into American theaters until January of 1967, when it was received very favorably. The lawsuit, by the way, eventually settled out of court, with Leone paying Kurosawa 15% of worldwide receipts and a fee of $100,000. A Fistful of Dollars was unlike anything that movie-going audiences had seen or heard before and really flung the saloon doors wide open in terms of style and influence. And with Fistful, Leone and Morricone were just getting started. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. The year after A Fistful of Dollars, 1965, director Sergio Leone, star Clint Eastwood, composer Ennio Morricone, getting in early in the process this time, and the Italian crew reunited to make a sequel titled For a Few Dollars More. The year after that, 1966, they made yet another sequel, what is perhaps the crowning artistic achievement in the whole spaghetti western genre. The good, the bad, and the ugly. With each movie, the cinematography, the humor, the machismo, the violence, the production value, the lighting, and especially the music, grew in artistic complexity and quality. In the mid-1960s, somewhere in the deserts of Spain, Morricone's music was blasted on set during principal photography for the actors and crew to soak in the mood and feel of Fistful's sequels as they all made cinematic history together. On the next episode of The Soundtrack Show, we'll be back to discuss the haunting music box, pan flute motifs, and gothic organs of For a Few Dollars More, and the epic, thematic nature of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.